Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. This week, we welcome Dr. Garen Wintemute to the show. Dr. Wintemute is an epidemiologist with UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, as well as the director of UCD's Violence Prevention Research Program. If you have read or heard or viewed any news at all about gun violence or gun control in the last 20 or 30 years, then it is likely that you have encountered Dr. Wintemute's research. He is one of the foremost experts and researchers, not only in California, but nationally and really anywhere in the world on firearm violence as a public health threat. Um, I first encountered Dr. Wintemute's work when I was reporting a story about the anniversary of the 1989 Cleveland Elementary School shooting in Stockton. Um, I was doing that story back in 2013, so that was almost a decade ago. And at that time, uh, according to statistics from the CDC, America was losing around 31,000 people per year to firearm fatalities. The majority of those deaths were suicides. And of course, there were homicides and accidents. And some of those were from mass shootings, which of course take up most of the oxygen in the national conversation around gun violence, a very polarized conversation. But the vast majority of firearm fatalities are not from mass shootings. I think it only accounts for like 1% of uh, fatalities um, related to firearm violence. That number um, of fatalities, that doesn't count, obviously, survivors of gun violence, um, of whom there are many tens, if not hundreds of thousands more. These are the folks who are shot, who are wounded, uh, who might have escaped a shooting, but went on to live with the trauma of being near or witnessing a shooting. And since I last spoke to Dr. Wintemute, the numbers have exploded upward. The provisional CDC data from 2021 was just released recently, and it says that more than 48,000 Americans died in 2021 as a result of firearm violence. And that is well over a 50% jump from less than a decade ago. So in this conversation, Dr. Wintemute and I talk about why that number spiked in recent years and what it means for the years ahead. Um, Dr. Wintemute also tells us about his program's current work examining the intersection between firearm violence and political violence, including the threat of electoral violence as soon as this year. And I, I know it sounds crazy. I'm just, just hearing myself say that. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> but, um, yeah, there you have it. We also talk about how California's gun control laws, which are obviously the strictest state measures in the United States, um, we talk about how those laws protect us and also how they don't, you know, what they cannot do to protect us. And Dr. Wintemute also responds to critics who point to the rise in violence as evidence that um, perhaps the laws aren't the public health safeguard that their proponents want them to be. Uh, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but uh, we cover all that and you can decide for yourself 
We also cover, you know, the, the hits. <laughs> we talk about everything else you expect to hear on What is California? Uh, Dr. Winsmute has some really fascinating observations about the outer reaches of California. Uh, it's nature from the ocean to the mountains way up in the tippy top of the state. He'll tell you all about that. And of course, we hear about his favorite California. Um, before we get too much farther along, I do want to just give a content warning and you know about the material we're talking about here. Uh, it is kind of a heavy topic, uh, admittedly, and our conversation does take a few turns that you might say are a little bit dark. Um, it's not all dark, just for the record, and I think it's important, which is why we go there. Um, I hope it's enlightening to you, and I hope it's helpful and informative. There are, of course, some bright spots, some silver linings, and we do try to lighten it up uh, a bit here and there. But Dr. Wendy Mute knows so much about this topic, and he's just seen so much as both a trauma center clinician and as a researcher for decades. And it's just, it's hard to hear when he says it because he just knows it. And um, there's really no no coming back or arguing uh, against a lot of just the very hard data that he brings to the, the discussion. I and mean, we just can't shrug off his findings if we don't want to hear them because it is about as inconvenient and tragic a truth as you're going to encounter in contemporary American life, wherever you live. If gun violence hasn't yet impacted you directly, then you're just a degree or two removed from someone who has been affected, right? And those degrees are closing wherever you happen to be. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying the facts are the facts. The numbers are the numbers. They don't lie. Laws can slow the violence and they can deter the violence and they can hopefully penalize those who commit the violence. But as long as we choose to live in a society that tolerates nearly 50,000 deaths annually, from firearm violence. And as long as we accept untold hundreds of thousands more wounded, injured, paralyzed, or worse by firearms, and as long as we choose to live in a society where there are more guns than people and where guns have more rights than people, and as long as we choose to live with the public health consequences of these choices, then hey, those degrees of separation will continue to close. And a gun tragedy of some kind is coming for all of us. It's coming for me. It's coming for you and everyone we know. So I wanted to check in with Dr. Wintemute to help us understand what that may look like. I really do believe that he is one of our greatest Californians. Um, the work he does is so, so, so important. And I'm just honored to speak with him. And I'm very proud to share his perspectives and his experience with you. Uh, if you're looking for more information about what we discuss here, head to the show notes for this episode, right there in your podcast app or at whatiscalifornia.com. I do have some links and some context that you can check out. And I'd love to hear what you're thinking about this too. If you have questions or comments or thoughts about this episode or anything else on What is California, please do drop me a line. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com, and you can find me on Twitter at whatcalifornia. I always appreciate hearing from you. So uh, let's go ahead and get to it. Here is me with Dr. Garen Wintemute on What is California? Enjoy. Dr. Garen Wintemute, welcome to What is California. It is so great to have you here. I just want to talk about your work and also just hear about your California story. Are you from here originally? And if not, how and when did you arrive here? So Stu, thanks for having me. Um, I am a California native, uh, 
My father was born here. My mom came here from Minnesota when she was three. I grew up in Southern California. I'm a beach rat uh, and have lived here in the Sacramento area for almost 50 years now. How'd you wind up in Sacramento? Medical school. Uh, it was, I, I was accepted to medical school at UC Davis. And as is really common, I stayed in the area where I trained. Mm. Uh, how has this area, you know, the Sacramento region, Northern California, maybe more generally, how have things changed here for you? And how do you feel about those changes? Sacramento's gotten bigger, of course. Um, the, the place where I live when I first moved to Sacramento was Hopsfields in the middle of a marsh. Um, and now it's built out and I have an apartment there. Um, I think we've, it, inland Northern California has not gone through the degree of, of urbanization that the coasts have. And, but I, I think the, the main phenomenon for us here is growth. So how do you feel about the, the growth, especially in the Sacramento area? Is there anything that kind of stands out to you that you uh, have noticed over, especially maybe over the last 10 or 15 years, you think, wow, I'm, I'm not sure uh, how I feel about that right now. Kind of the opposite, I think. Um, and, and maybe only because there's lots of land around and there's a downside to what I'm about to say. But, but Sacramento, while it's gotten bigger, has not gotten terribly crowded. Um, and I think we have and have had generally foresighted, genu genuinely public, public interested um, city governments that have worked to manage growth in a way that, that um, benefits as many people as possible. They haven't done the job perfectly, but, um, but I think they've done well. In my own particular case, um, I live literally on the edge of the city. A couple hundred yards from where I'm sitting is the levee for the Sacramento River. And on the other side of that river is nothing but farmland for 80 miles down to the Bay Area. Hmm. So what's your earliest memory of California? Long Beach, um, early 50s as a toddler, uh, growing vegetables in the backyard. What vegetables? Squash. There's a photograph. That's, or, there's, um, uh, I'm maybe five by then. My brother is um, two, and we're sitting with some sunburst squash, feeling just proud as peaches. <laughs> Do you still grow squash? Are you still a, a gardener, a farmer? No, I live, I live in an apartment now. I grow succulents. Um, uh, I, I, until then, yes. Uh, one, of, one of the really nice things about Sacramento is it's great farmland. And mm -hmm. um, you live here and you've got a backyard. You've got a garden if you want it. Yeah. Why do you think that memory of Long Beach and the squash kind of sticks with you? Why is, why is, it, why is that one? Well, partly the photograph. But um, I, I grew up um, during the baby boom uh, and my neighborhood was inhabited by families all of roughly the same age range. There were kids in most of the homes. And so, so growing up was, was something of a communal experience. You didn't just play with your siblings, you, you played with the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Do you have another enduring or significant memory of California that sticks with you from the interim? Well, I, maybe an aggregate memory, spending lots of time um, in relationship to the ocean, um, on the water, in the water, under the water. Um, I'm, I'm a, a coastal person. I, I often think that, that um, 
I, I, if I had to pick a tribe, if you will, I identify as a Californian. Um, my proper relationship to the continent is with my back to it, looking out into the Pacific. I love the way you put that. With your back to the continent, looking at the Pacific. So how do you make it work as a valley resident all these years? The river is 200 yards from where I'm sitting. Um, <laughs> and so it's the biggest water around. Uh, and I, I go to the coast on a, on a regular basis. Um, it would, it's, and it's, it's sort of in the backyard. I know that the ocean is a day away, is a less than a day's drive away, just as I know that the mountains are less than a day's drive away. All of that to me from, from, from the shoreline to the, to the Sierra peaks is in a sense coast. It's on the, the down slope. How does California's geography overall influence or impact you and who you are. I mean, do you have a favorite California place, perhaps? I have a, a bunch of favorite California places. Um, some people know and some don't. Um, Point Reyes is wonderful for many reasons, geological and also just to look at. Um, the Warner Mountains, which people I think are not familiar with often, the far northeastern corner of California. Um, I'll put it this way. Think the Sierras, but in complete isolation, not as high, um, but basically the same flora and fauna and nobody goes there. Wow. Um, I have spent a week hiking in the, in the Warner Mountains, and not only have I not seen anyone on the trail, I was the only car at the trailhead. Amazing. The Sierras are not like that. It's really quite the place. Um, I like Morro Bay because it's not too far from Sacramento, and it's, um, a, it's a beach that's about four miles long that basically nobody ever goes to because it's too far from L.A. and, and too far from the Bay Area. Uh, and there's some really interesting geology there, too. Yeah. So you like the isolated spaces. You're not a big uh, crowds guy is what I'm interpreting here. I, I like, I'll put it this way. One of the things to, to love deeply about California is that it's not too hard in California to see the planet as it was before our species was upon it. Um, and I really like getting away from the human impact on the planet. I mean, we never completely do, um, but it doesn't hit you in the face. Um, and let me add an observation. People tend to think, and I kind of use the same framing, of California um, in terms of longitude north and south. Um, and people think about driving California north and, and south. But the really interesting way to, to experience California is from east to west or, or vice versa. Because you can, in the, in the course of a single day, go from shoreline to mountains, to valley, to foothills, to, to mountains again, see an entire range of topography and geology uh, pieces of the planet that came together in, in different ways, sometimes laid right on top of one another like a layer cake. You can see them all and you can do all of that in a single day. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot when I travel around the state. I'm looking at things that maybe haven't been seen for who knows how many hundreds of years in some cases. If you kind of find the right trail into the forest or whatever, you know, like who's, has anyone ever been here before? <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. Uh, you know, or, or when they were, when was that? Um, yes. You can kind of see Earth as it really was. I, so I, I totally relate to what you're saying. And it's overwhelming. It's totally overwhelming to think about that, just like this little blip that we are against the greater background of this state. It's wild. In, in one day, a couple of years ago, early in the day, um, I was up on the, the ridge of the Warner Mountains. And by the end of that day, 
um, I was standing among the largest trees in the world on the coast down by Eureka. Um, and they're not that far apart. Who are some Californians who have influenced you over the years or who have impacted you and who you are personally? These are people that, that um, uh, your listeners won't have heard of, um, but, but the, the type I, sus- I suspect will resonate. I had really good teachers um, from kindergarten on up. Um, Mr. Levitt in sixth grade and Ms. Schroeder and Ms. Schaefer um, for English in high school. Um, I, I went to really good public schools in Long Beach and am in their debt. Um, collectively, I think what they did for, for all of us <clears throat> was help us see that knowing and understanding things, whatever it was they taught, can be really exciting and that knowledge and understanding are tools. They help open the world up to you. Well, let's talk about your work a little bit. Um, where do you work and what do you do there? I work at uh, UC Davis, um, but not at the main campus. I'm an ER doc. I practice medicine. Um, And so I work at UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento. The official title of your program at UC Davis is the Violence Prevention Research Program. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that program, how it started, and how you got involved with that. I started doing research here on firearm violence in 1982. And shortly thereafter, the Centers for Disease Control launched a program to provide federal funding for that research. And we got a grant, and then we got a, a grant to do a whole series of projects. That grant proposal needed a title, and the title was Violence Prevention Research Program. That's how that happened in the, in the early 90s. Um, we've been in existence uh, under that name ever since, and it's an, a, a research unit at the university that gets funding from federal and state and, and private sources um, for research purposes. On top of that, um, we also are the home of the California Firearm Violence Research Center. So there are now two organizations that sit side by side, if you will. That center is funded, chartered, authorized, funded um, by the state of California uh, to do research on firearm violence broadly considered in California. So how and why did you become interested in practicing medicine in the first place? And how did you kind of gravitate toward firearm violence in that space, especially like as, as an epidemiological like phenomenon? Yes. So um, I was going to be a marine biologist uh, growing up on the ocean. Um, I loved the process of doing the work. In the end, didn't like the questions very much. Um, I was going to be a neuroscientist. I loved the questions, didn't like the process. Um, Medicine loved the questions, loved the process. What medicine offered was the opportunity to be in the world doing good, um, both for one person at a time and at the population level. So the process couldn't be beat and the questions were fascinating. I did not get into it thinking about violence. Um, that, that's an outgrowth, partly of emergency medicine work in general. But shortly after I completed training, I spent um, five months-ish in working in Cambodia, um, right after Pol Pot time. Um, was the medical director for a camp with 40,000 refugees. I was sometimes the only doctor in that camp. Um, I believe it was the only organized source of medical care in the western half of Cambodia at the time. And 
that was a very intense experience in the capacity of violence to shape, in that case, entire societies. And I came back to the States deciding I'm going to change my career and quit my job running an emergency department, went back to school to get training in epidemiology. And when I finished school, went back to practicing medicine, and now I do both. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the research itself, because that is, I think, how many folks know you and your work is as a researcher and as uh, one of the foremost researchers of gun violence in the United States. What were you seeing in your medical practice in the victims and socially that maybe other doctors and researchers weren't seeing that you wanted to get out there? One of the things that attracted me to working on firearm violence was that nobody was doing it. Um, it was literally two years before I went back to public health school that the first article on firearm violence as a public health problem was published. And it was published by the people I studied under when I went back to school. So it, the situation had been this, that interpersonal violence was seen as a crime problem. And suicide, if we had any story at all about it, was a mental health problem. And unintentional injuries, so-called accidents, were typically sort of a sporting problem. And the, the, the paradigm shift was to see the common denominator, to take an, an epidemiologic approach and say, hey, wait a minute, host, agent, vector, environment works for infectious diseases. We've shown that it works for motor vehicle injuries. That had happened over the prior 30 years. Let's try it for violence. And, and sure enough, it works. So, so that, that was the change in viewpoint that mattered. Recognizing that this problem could be studied using tested methods, in an expectation that the results of the study would lead to ideas for intervention and prevention that might work. And that has proven to be true. And around what year did you start kind of zeroing in on this? 1982. So it's been 40 years. What are some highlights or milestones that stand out from those 40 years that you're especially proud of or that you think went a long way toward helping us understand guns and gun violence as a public health threat? This is not bragging. It's just a statement of fact. Much of the work that we do cannot be done anywhere else because the data don't exist or they're not made available for research. So if it's not being done here in California, it's just plain not being done. Let me get more specific. We're able to do studies that involve hundreds of thousands of people who have either purchased firearms or not purchased firearms. We can look at the risk associated with the purchase of a firearm or the benefits for that matter. We can map the criminal gun market in California statewide. We can, using big data approaches that did not exist when I started work, we can try to develop risk prediction tools to help identify people who might be at risk for suicide and are buying a gun, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. That's never been done before. And we're, we're in, I think, in the process of doing that. So this stuff saves lives is what you're saying. Like the data and the application of this data in a practical real world sense save lives. That's my belief. The, the general process, as, as we both know, is that in this as in other similar domains, the life-saving partly is after an injury occurs, medical care, et cetera, but much of the life-saving has to be done before a life-threatening event occurs, is to prevent that event. Here's, here's a fundamental point. A large majority of people who die from gunshot wounds, still today, die where they are shot, 
doesn't matter how fast the ambulance is, doesn't matter how good we are in the emergency department, how good the trauma surgeons are, those people are just dead. So case I make talking to clinicians all the time, if we as clinicians want to make the greatest impact we can on firearm mortality, we have to move upstream. We have to intervene in the flow of events that would bring people to the emergency department. We have to stop them from getting shot in the first place. And that means doing public health sorts of research. It means working with policymakers and others to translate that evidence into action. Mm -hmm. According to provisional data released uh, in September by the CDC, gun deaths in America hit an all-time high in 2021, claiming 48,832 lives. That is a 7.7% increase over 2020. And it is roughly a 41% increase from a decade ago. Based on your research and observation, what factors do you think influenced that rise? Yeah, this is a really important question because um, you made a comparison to a point in time um, quite a, uh, several years ago. Um, it all just happened since 20, uh, 2000. Uh, rates of firearm violence, na fatal firearm violence nationwide, on average, had been relatively stable, going down in places like California, going up in other places. And we can talk about that contrast if you'd like. But fast forward. <clears throat> From 2019 to 2020, for homicide, we had the largest year-over-year -year increase that we have ever seen in 100 years of, of collecting mortality data. And our data don't go back more than 100 years in the United States. So the largest ever observed for homicide in 2019 to 2020. It appears, the data are provisional, that for suicide, that largest ever increase occurred from 2020 to 2021. And oh, by the way, homicide also went up in 2021 relative to 2020. So we are now seeing rates of firearm violence, fatal firearm violence, that are higher than they've been in a generation, higher than they've been um, since the mid-1990s. At the same time, I'm going to go beyond the scope of your question here. At the same time, and not coincidentally, we have experienced and are still experiencing an absolutely unprecedented surge in gun purchasing. Using data for background checks for gun purchases, which is the closest thing we have, um, firearm purchasing took off in January of 2020, when we saw a pandemic coming, social unrest, I better buy a gun, something bad might happen. Right. And for a bunch of reasons, that surge in purchasing continues today. We have data through August. It continues today. We are in the midst of this. We, we are in the midst of a huge national experiment that's going to answer the question, what happens when you take a society that is exhausted, fearful, concerned for its future, angry at itself, polarized. What happens when you take such a society and throw a bunch of guns into it? Oh God. We have, we have no alternative but to live through answering that question. Uh, it gets very dark these days. If there is any good news that I have been able to kind of deduce from the last 10 years or so, it's that there has been a thaw in the prohibition or the at least implied prohibition 
uh, on federal funding for research into gun violence as a public health threat. Can you tell us a little bit about that thaw? I guess what the prohibition was in the first place and and how things have kind of eased up a little bit to help folks like you do the work you do. CDC started funding research on firearm violence in the late 1980s. And that work, we, we had a grant, others did, um, that, that work was proceeding. Um, and some of the results that were published were seen as harmful to the interests of the National Rifle Association, potentially to the interests of the firearm injury, industry. So a member of Congress named Jay Dickey, who in his own words was uh, so describing himself as point man for the NRA, wow. <laughs> um, caused to be adopted into the budget for CDC, language saying that funding couldn't be used to advocate or promote gun control. That was taken as a prohibition on research. And the practical outcome was that for 20 years, there was no federal health funding for research on firearm violence. The National Institute of Justice had a program, but it was very small. Fast forward, 2013, Sandy Hook has just happened. President Obama says, hang on, research is not advocacy, let's get back to doing some research on this problem and requested funding for research, which Congress did not provide. NIH- The National Institutes of Health. Yes, yes launched a program of, of, of research basically on its own nickel. And the thaw has continued. And now there, now there is funding for research. And two really good things have happened. One is that people are back doing the work. But the other is this. Through those 20 years of no money, basically, you could count the number of people in the United States whose primary commitment was to research on firearm violence on the fingers of two hands. There was almost nobody hmm. at a time when there were 30, 40,000 deaths a year. So here's a rhetorical question. How many people are dead today who would be alive if that research had been allowed to continue? It's as if we had said, let's not do research on breast cancer or diabetes, which kill about as many people as gun violence does today. Let's just let those health problems run their course. Of course, we didn't do that, um, but we did do it for firearm violence. Not anymore, but the, the victory is tenuous. Um, shift who, the party in the White House or the party's party controlled in Congress, and that funding could go away. But the other good thing that has happened is this. During that time when so few people were doing research in this field, we were, if you will, an endangered species. It was entirely possible that research would simply dry up on this problem. That's not going to happen now. Now there are hundreds of people working on this problem, committed to it, funding or no funding. The private sector has, has stepped up and is helping to fund this research. So research on firearm violence as a health problem is here to stay. Well, that seems like good news. It is good news. I mean, we can take a little bit of good news out of this, uh, despite the record number of gun deaths. But what you just articulated, though, I think is emblematic of a bigger issue in the United States just as a regard toward public health at all. Like, you know, we, we don't necessarily take uh, the treatment of diabetes seriously. You know, we don't make insulin 
accessible the way we should. COVID, we just watched a million people die, you know, without really doing anything to stem that tide, anything like organized or sustained or meaningful. It was just all kind of just throwing whatever we could at the wall. There was no plan, no strategy. Gun violence and our leaders regard for its consequences or lack of regard for its consequences seems just par for the course in terms of how we view public health in this country. Is that anything we can change? Is that anything you can change? I, I, I see it more positively, but let me start with the negative and then, then I'm going to kind of shift. I agree with you that this is not unique to uh, firearm violence. I mean, as a practicing physician working through the, the COVID pandemic, I've watched the country turn its back on science over and over again. I've watched turning one's back on science become a badge of honor. And, and, and my deep concern is that we are turning as a society, not all of us clearly, um, but we are turning our backs on science, not just health science. What about climate science and so forth? We, we are yeah, exactly. burying our heads in the sand right. and refusing to acknowledge that the world is the place that it is, even when people are, I, I'm gonna change. I have a, a really good friend, an ER doc, who says, you know, sometimes being an ER doc is like being the bowman on the Titanic, going, hey, look out for that iceberg, you know? Um, and the ship keeps on going. Um, and and some, sometimes the, the job really feels like that. Yeah. But I think we're starting to change course a little bit, and certainly in the last couple of years, recognizing, hey, duh, Science does have valuable things to teach us. Um, just yesterday, the California Department of Justice announced the creation of the nation's first Office for Gun Violence Prevention um, in, in a State Department of Justice. I, I work with that department. These are people who value science in the creation of policy. They value science in law enforcement. And, and there's going to be some partnership growing up out of that. We are starting to recognize the dangers of turning our backs on science, and people of good heart are fighting to keep that from happening. So let's stay on this kind of positive track, especially since California is such a leader in this field. And I think your, your work and your organization, your, your program there at UCD have spearheaded a lot of this positive growth, this, this, this movement. Um, you just mentioned this Office of Gun Violence Prevention. And in the release that they sent out yesterday announcing this office, they noted that California saw a 37% lower gun death rate than the national average in 2021, a number we just stipulated was a record high, right? Um, and according to the CDC, California's gun death rate was the 44th lowest in the nation with eight and a half gun deaths per 100,000 people. That's compared to um, 13.7 deaths per 100,000 nationally and a state like Mississippi, which is 28.6%, right? So uh, a third of that rate. So what are we doing differently in California? Thank you very much for that. This is something that I, I looked at um, a few months ago to just sort of wrap my head around it. California has adopted a whole suite of policies directed at preventing gun violence that don't exist in most other states. We require a background check for all purchases of firearms. Um, we have broader criteria for denial of firearm purchase than uh, most other states do. We still have an assault weapon ban, and we have a, a relatively low, low rate of mass shootings, by the way. Um, we've done a bunch of other things. Here, I think, is the result. I'm going to paint a word picture here. Through 
the late 80s and into the early 90s, California's firearm violence death rate, suicide and homicide together here, was substantially higher than the national average and tracked the national average quite closely. We started doing all these things. Beginning in the early 1990s, rates of gun violence across the country, um, or sorry, the mid-1990s, started to, to decline, but they plummeted in California, much steeper slope, such that by about the turn of the century, now 22 years ago, California's firearm violence rates had gone from being substantially higher than the national average to substantially lower than the national average. And over the 20 years until the pandemic hit, because the pandemic upset the apple carts, firearm violence rates in the rest of the country were trending upward. In California, they were continuing to trend downward, such that in 2019, the firearm violence death rate in the rest of the country was 60, 60% higher than it was in California. Rates have gone up everywhere in the last couple of years because of the pandemic and many other things. But if there is this graphic image, I have the graph, of, of a real success story. Now, scientists, me included, have not done a good job in defining that success and, and demonstrating it. We, we made a mistake. Our training is to look at one policy at a time and see, did that policy work? What about that one? What about that one? Um, and sometimes you can do that. But at the aggregate level, we set ourselves up for failure because many policies were enacted at about the same time with the same objective, and you couldn't disentangle one from the rest. So we ended up saying, well, maybe they're not making much difference. But if you look at the aggregate effect, it's clear as daylight. I don't know if it's just me kind of leaning anecdotally or just having kind of a negativity bias or what, a confirmation bias, whatever it is. But this year, California has seen what seems like unusually high incidence of gun violence uh, from in, in Sacramento, where, where you and I both reside. Um, there was a shooting in April that killed six people downtown and injured 12 others. Uh, on the 4th of July weekend, there was this I mean, there were multiple shootings in Sacramento. I believe all over California we saw this. Every time we hear these stories, it overshadows the progress and the growth that you just described. And it prompts people who are anti-gun control. That It reignites this argument that California's strict gun laws don't work. And based on your research, and despite the violence, how do you respond to that argument or push back against these measures that California has in place to sustain low numbers of gun violence. You, you're, you're right. This is a, whether it comes as a question or a criticism, it's something that I hear all the time. We as a species did not evolve to see long-term patterns. We evolved to see right, what's right in front of us because that's what you need in order to survive in the environment in which we evolved as a species. We still carry that millions of years old neural equipment around as we, as we operate in 21st century society. And sometimes it's, it's not what we need. I'm a clinician. If somebody gave me a new treatment to use and said, this treatment will reduce mortality from condition X by 25%, do I see that treatment as a failure because 75% of the, of the deaths continue? Or is it a success 
because it reduces the death rate by 25%? Obviously, the answer is B. That's hugely effective. So when somebody says there was a killing yesterday, gun control doesn't work, I say, can we please see the broader picture? Nobody expects a policy, a suite of policies to be 100% effective. Lack of 100% effectiveness is not the same as no effectiveness. And we live, we live in the world of partial success. And it's not even like it's all about the numbers of dead. There's just the injuries that you can sustain from a gun attack. I mean, there's paralysis, there's PTSD. Um, there is evidence that exposure to violence creates more violence. I mean, there's all these other factors too that kind of exist outside the parameters of morbidity data, right? So, I mean, like, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that too? Because that's something that people don't necessarily think about. Actually, I think they do, and I'll tell you why. Um, but first off, I agree. Um, we have good data about mortality. We, we don't know how many people are, are injured from firearms in the United States. Um, see, again, a, a, an orchestrated and largely successful effort to prevent research from being done. We simply don't know. We can't answer the basic questions. Um, but you're absolutely right about, if you will, the, the ripple effects beyond the person um, who is either either killed or injured, who will have physical and psychological disability, but the people around them, the people in the neighborhood who hear gunshots as part of the, the soundtrack of daily life. We did some research here in California in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and we asked, we asked people a bunch of questions about exposure to violence, but in a different sort of way. We asked, so do, are gunshots a, a problem in your neighborhood? Um, how, many, how many times a week um, do you encounter a sidewalk memorial where somebody has died from violence? Is there somebody in your social network, do you know somebody who's been shot or shot themselves or who's at risk of harming themselves or somebody else? And when you added up all of those sort of daily life exposures, Two-thirds of adults in California have daily life exposure to violence. And about 12%, if I recall correctly, listed three or more of those six things as part of the fabric of their daily life. All of us have a stake in this problem. Everybody, there's, whether it's the relative who committed suicide or for, for a, a young man of color, it might be the half dozen good friends who've died in the last two years. Something like that. Does that shape the course of a life? You bet it does. Um, so the, the awareness is out there. The conversation is not. So I always kind of theorize that the degrees of separation between, you know, an individual and someone affected by gun violence, by, I mean, by which I mean someone shot, injured, killed, uh, in a gun attack of some kind, a suicide attempt or um, a successful um, uh, suicide, that is the degree of separation that we need to look at. Because I think as that shrinks, more and more people will start to realize, oh, wow, this isn't just something that happens to someone else. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I've, I've been um, making that, I make that point in almost every lecture I give, and I've done it for decades, and I have some slides to back it up. Every year, you've talked about the CDC mortality data. Every year I update my CDC mortality slides in part just to make precisely that point. There's a slide that shows for, for men, homicide rates by, um, firearm homicide rates by um, age and race ethnicity. And there's this huge spike, of course, for black men in teenage early adulthood. But the next slide shows suicide 
where the group at high risk is white non-Hispanic men, and where risk doesn't go up, doesn't increase early and then decline, it increases, stays level, and then it goes up even faster. But the other point is this. So you and I are talking about risk sort of at an individual level. But there's also what's called burden at the societal level across all of society who is dying from gun violence. And if you put those numbers together, it, this turns out to be the case. Because suicide is more common than homicide by quite a bit, it was two to one before the pandemic. Right, yeah. Two suicides for every homicide right. changed with the pandemic. But also because there are so many more white non-Hispanic men than there are black men in the United States, it turns out that beginning at about age 35, first a plurality and then an absolute majority of all the men who die from gun violence in the United States are white non-Hispanic men. Wow. It's suicide, about which we do not have a public conversation. Mm -hmm. But the point I sometimes make in a lecture, and I'm gonna make it here in the same words is, so, who knew that gun violence was so much an old white guy problem? <laughs> yeah. And I do that part, partly to get a laugh, but it's a laugh that I hope comes with some recognition. And let me double down. I do the research because I want to make change. And I've been doing them both, or attempting both for 40 years. And I know, and you made this point earlier, I'm gonna make it more darkly, that the fact that the demographics of homicide put young black men at the top, and the demographics of power put old white men at the top, mean that is one of the main reasons we've made so little progress. People look at the demographics of interpersonal gun violence and say, not like me, not my people, not my problem. To get change, we need everybody to understand that they or people like them have a stake in the problem. When we corresponded earlier this year about you coming on the podcast, you mentioned you were going to have some new data in June that, and I'm, if I may quote you directly, you said, uh, it'll be likely to get people very wide awake and will highlight a new direction we're pursuing. Can you elaborate on that? And what is that data? What can you tell us? At the start of the pandemic, we began investigating the surge in gun purchasing. And then there was a surge in violence. And we started looking at some of the factors associated with that. To make a long story short, um, my primary focus now is on the advent of, of large-scale political violence in the United States um, and the potential for something that we, we called civil war, for lack of a better term. That work did appear in June. Um, we learned that half the country um, from this was a large-scale nationwide um, population representative survey. About half the country uh, thought it was at least somewhat likely that there would be civil war in the United States in the next few years, um, that about 15% thought it was uh, very likely that there would be um, civil war. Um, we learned that millions of people extrapolating from our sample um, were willing to say on a survey um, that they would kill somebody or shoot somebody to advance a political objective. Oh my God. And we have more work coming out. It'll actually appear next month that looks at some of this by um, political party affiliation and so on. But the, the bottom line was the picture with regard to political violence is much 
more grim than most people think it is. Is it any less grim in California as opposed to other states or nationally? I, I don't know. Uh, we will know about California. We, in that survey, we, we drew an oversample, so we will replicate the national work for California. We just haven't had time to do that yet. Other than California, um, we won't have state-specific answers. We will have region-specific answers. What can you tell me about the research you're doing right now around political violence and its implications? Growing on the work that we had done um, earlier, our group has become concerned, as, and as others have, about the possibility of electoral violence, quite specifically um, in November, let alone in 2024. Um, I, I put it to people this way. What do you think is going to happen when armed voter suppression, and don't tell me you don't see that coming, meets armed voter support? Mm -hmm. So again, from that nationally representative survey, um, we asked people uh, about their endorsement of political violence in the abstract and also their personal willingness to engage in political violence, their willingness to show up at a political event armed and things like that. And what we learned is there are millions of people in the United States extrapolating from our sample um, who say, yes, I think in some specific circumstances, violence is usually or always justified. Um, yes, I would be willing to hurt or kill somebody. Yes, I will show up at a political event armed. Um, in percentage terms, a small percentage of the population, but it's a big population. A small percentage of a big number is a big number. Um, what a big number? We, like, can you can you quantify it at all? Well, it's sort of like five million ish, maybe. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. That's huge. <laughs> oh my god! It's a very small percentage of the of the adult population of the United States, but it's also a lot of people. Now, let me let me let me get hopeful on you, Stu. Um, Here's, here's the hopeful side of this. I'm gripping my face for the listeners at home. I am, exactly. I am melting he's, he's, into a pool of, of just goo. Well, he's, he's doing the Edvard Munch scream is what he's doing. Um, so, um, so here's what we learned, in a, to put that in a positive light. We asked people, do you think political violence in general is ever justified? And you know, we gave people options, never, somewhat, usually, always, through everything I'm about to say. And more than 80% of the population said, never. Okay. But about 20% said, at least somewhat. Okay. Um, sometimes, excuse me. Um, then we asked people, whatever you think in general, how about, and then we gave them 15 specific scenarios um, to put Donald Trump back in office this year, 2022, to give one example. Um, and even larger majorities said no to any of those specifics. To go negative just for a second, a third of the group said yes to at least one of the 15 sort of specific scenarios. But then we asked, okay, how about you yourself? Would you be willing to engage in violence yourself? And 80% of the people who said violence is justified said, but no, I wouldn't do it myself. So I think we were seeing a lot of talk is cheap. Um, and in, in this case, that's really good news because we, we don't want people to be willing to engage in political violence. 
So when we talk about the name of your program, the Violence Prevention Research Program, it's not exclusively about gun violence. I mean, we can assume or, you know, deduce or project that maybe political violence will include the use of guns, but it's not just about gun violence. It's about the theory of violence, the practice of violence, the conception of violence, the propagation of violence, all of those things, and gun violence. Yep, and, and the consequences of violence and what to do about all that. Yes, for, for a couple of very specific reasons. One is, particularly here in California, where as you and I have talked about, we've done so much already, there's not a whole lot that can be done at the policy level about gun violence if all we do is focus just on guns. Mm-hmm. as products and their, mm-hmm. and regulating their commerce and so on. We need to think more, more broadly, which is where things like community violence prevention programs come in and so forth. The other reason is this, that most fatal violence involves guns. So if we think more broadly about fatal violence, we're catching gun violence in the net. Um, but the other is this, that the risk factors for gun violence are, except for the presence of a gun, are risk factors for violence of all types. So if we focus on risk factors for gun violence, and think more broadly, then presto changeo, our, our mission becomes de, de facto preventing all forms of violence. And we have embraced that. Um, I work on political violence because partly because I think guns will be involved if it ever really takes off. Um, the threat of guns. Um, what happens to voting when people show up with guns at the polling place? Exactly, yeah. That's my point. Guns yeah. don't have to be fired to be used in violent ways. It's the um, presence of the gun, you know, what the gun communicates on its own. Exactly right. Intimate partner violence works the same way as experts in that field know. Right. So, so I take our mission broadly um, to think about violence involving guns, possibly involving guns, sitting next side to violence involving guns. It's all of a piece for us. So what do you want listeners to know about firearm violence as a public health matter in particular in California that maybe isn't widely known? Um, you know, what might enlighten them, what might prepare them, or even reassure them about what they hear or see or read in the news or on social media every day? I want people to know that there is a science to this, um, just the way there is a science to understanding, preventing, treating other sorts of health problems, uh, that there are people on the case trying to do to provide better understanding and better treatment. Not nearly enough people, but a, a growing number. I want them to know some of the major conclusions of um, that science, many of which um, are from California, using California data. There is no longer any doubt at the population level that bringing a firearm into the home increases risk of a violent death in that home, not just for the person whose gun it is, but for everybody in that household. And the differences are huge. I'll give you one example. For firearm owners, men, who bring a firearm into the home, it's their first gun, risk of suicide in California, these are California data, large numbers, risk of suicide goes up by a factor of 1,000. That's 10,000% increase. Wow. It goes down with time thereafter, wow. but there just is no question anymore. But risk of risk of suicide and homicide goes up for the other people in the household mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Um, I want them to know that based on the best evidence available, the suite of policies that California has enacted have been effective. 
Trends for firearm violence here do not look like trends in the rest of the country, and I think the laws get credit for that. So what has your work revealed to you about California that you found most compelling or even surprising? I am persuaded that the laws are working, that we're, that we're doing the right thing. Um, and I think that's going to continue because policymakers here value scientific evidence in, in making policy. Um, we have that relationship. They make the policy and then they can say, by the way, would you evaluate this, please? Make sure that it's doing what we said it was going to do. Surprises, not from California work, but I will say this, from the national work that we're doing on, on political violence, um, I was surprised by, in a negative way, by a couple of findings. One is this, that 20% of adults in the United States agree strongly or very strongly, not just somewhat, strongly or very strongly, with the proposition that having a strong leader is more important for America than having a democracy. One adult in five, when faced with the choice, would take strong leader over democracy. And there's another one, a dimension that we've touched on. In our study, 40%. In other studies where the question is worded a little bit differently, 30% of adults in the United States subscribe to the great replacement delusion, oh, that there God. is a conspiracy Ugh. to replace native-born white Americans with immigrants and people of color. This is heavy stuff. How do you get a break? How do you kind of separate from it and just like escape for a little bit? What do you do to just kind of get your mind away from this stuff? We've talked about it. Um, I, I take breaks. Um, I go to the beach. I go to the mountains. I, I see the planet before we were on it more or less. Um, because that's how we evolved. You know, we evolved in an environment in which humans were rare. Getting back in touch with the world as it is, not as man has reshaped it, um, humankind, I should say, instead of man, um, is really helpful. I find it hard to take breaks because there's all this important work to be done. Um, the insight that really makes breaks possible for me is recognizing, and I paid for this lesson, recognizing that if I don't do that, I'm no good at my job. Um, I've got to get refreshed. I've got to tank back up. I've got to restore the optimism or I'll, I'll give up. And I also, I motivate myself with slogans. And one of those slogans is, if the good guys give up, the bad guys win. What would you say is the biggest challenge that California faces? And how can that challenge be surmounted? If I had to pick one, climate, just as it is for everybody else. We are way ahead of the rest of the country, as we are on many issues in, in facing up to this and enacting policies. Um, California is not an island, uh, and being an island wouldn't be enough. I mean, the, the planet needs to resolve this. What I hope for is that California's policies will s help set a standard, not just for the rest of the country, but for the rest of the world. In your experience discussing California with folks outside the state, what do you find they most misunderstand about this place? The breadth of California. I, I like telling people that California has more Wyoming than Wyoming does. I, um, there's, <laughs> there's a lot more to California right. than, yeah. um, than left coast liberals. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think that's the, the, the main point. They, they think we're all media-obsessed city dwellers um, who don't have deep roots. And that's simply not true. We end with the same question for all guests. Get ready. Who is your favorite Californian 
past or present, and why? I'm going to nominate Gary Snyder. Um, Gary Snyder is a poet. Uh, he is not a native Californian, but he's lived most of his life here. Um, he lives in the Sierra foothills and writes poetry of place. Um, I am a person of place, as we've kind of made clear. Um, but he touches really well and capably on the universal in his poetry of place. And he, he reminds me of William Blake, you know, seeing the universe in a grain of sand, eternity in an hour. Um, Gary Snyder can write about a pine cone, and you know that you're, you're reading about all of creation. Hmm. Dr. Garen Wintemute, thank you so much for being with us. It was a great pleasure talking to you. And just seriously, thank you so much for the work you do. It means so much to me and all of California. I'm very grateful. Well, thank you, Max, too. It's been a real pleasure. All right, there you have it, Dr. Garen Wintemute. Thank you very much to Dr. Wintemute for dropping by and uh, helping us better understand this phenomenon in our state and in our nation, this sickness. Uh, I hope that that was um, useful and not totally destabilizing <laughs> like it was for me. Um, actually, there's a little bit of both. There's a spectrum there, but it's tough. It's tough to hear this stuff, but I hope that we as a state you know, and hopefully as a country can um, get behind some common sense changes to stop this. We don't have to choose to live like this. Uh, again, you can find all of the show notes right there in your podcast app, links, context, other information that Dr. Wintemute was talking about. Lots of reference there uh, if you'd like to check that out. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Ayersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a free episode of our podcast every Tuesday and a fresh roundup of weekend links. Those are cool California news stories in your inbox every Friday. Again, that is free on Substack at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Please email me anytime to send comments, thoughts, questions, concerns, hate mail, love notes, marriage proposals, other stuff I haven't even thought of yet. You can reach me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would love to hear from you. And of course, please, please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Share with whoever you think would appreciate this show. And if you liked it, please rate and review What Is California on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find us. That's going to do it for this episode. I am so, so grateful that you joined us. I'm so grateful for your listenership and I appreciate you so very much. I look forward to catching you next time. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.